My name is Rose Bunch, and I am originally from Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas to be specific, which is where this short story is set. Um, the story is the uh, influence for the novel I'm working on. It first came out in Tin House uh, in their Class in America issue, and um, it's based on an area that has a lot of shifting demographics. Uh, up until the 1970s, Arkansas was the least nomadic state in the country. And so if someone was born there, they died there. I still have cousins who are just now seeing the ocean for the first time. It, it, has, it, had, a, it had a static nature, nature because of poverty and because of the hills. I'm from the Ozarks. And um, with the rise of Walmart and Tyson Foods International and J.B. Hunt Trucking, all right there, it's completely transformed the landscape. So we've had a massive influx of people from all over the world. Every contractor, or every vendor, I should say, that has a product that is sold in Walmart has to maintain a full-time office in Northwest Arkansas. So we have a Procter & Gamble building, we have Johnson Johnson, we have all of that. And that is just in my lifetime, and it's completely transformed the landscape. But because it's been so swift, we also have vestiges, uh, remnants of the original Ozark culture and people who can remember a different time period and people who grew up in maybe an hour outside of town that have a completely different experience of Arkansas than someone who grows up now close to that action. And so that's what this story is based upon. And so the setting, as much as anything, becomes a character in the novel. Um, but I, I grew to love this first person voice. I, I really like this character, and so I just wanted to spend more time with her. I'll go ahead and read it now. Uh, the title of the story is Sustainability. This morning I woke up coming. I was dreaming of the recent storms, a seesaw shift in barometric pressure, newly constructed homes scattered like straw under a green sky. Sometimes in the dream there are sirens and a working television. A weather girl with tidy hair giving the countdown before the power goes out. We have rotation, I repeat, we have rotation. On the ground, heading southwest at 35 miles per hour, expected impact right the fuck where you are in approximately 12 minutes. Get your ass covered. But my ass was not covered in my dream. I floated through the wind-whipped dark in a peaceful vacuum, a tornado singing to me in a low moan, fucking me midair like some foreign god I read about in high school. I blinked and got my bearings on our bedroom while my stomach did flips, but there was only my husband Charlie snoring softly beside me. Arms over his head, his acne-scarred face turned into his own armpit, fluttering the hair there with each breath. Through the curtain, I saw the day was bright, clear, and clean after another night of high winds, and I heard neighbors' kids in their backyard screaming, which still startled me a little. Their cries remind me of injured animals and fear where everyone else hears play. In the distance, I heard the low buzz of chainsaws, a constant since the ice storm only a month ago. My cousins and uncles are making $50 an hour part-time just because they own a Husqvarna 353 or a steel 250 gas-powered chainsaw while I pull in 400 a week as a full-time executive assistant at Tyson Foods. A job my boss now says I got because I was the best-looking applicant they had. Not all hayseed and hunkered, he said, and winked. You just wait, Jan, Charlie says. Stick it out and I'll put that business degree to work, or we'll have kids, one or the other. I've only managed to take eight classes toward my degree, and I'm not sure what I think about offspring growing inside me like larvae and then ripping me open only to bug the shit out of us for 18 years. 
No matter what my mother says, lots of people put off having kids until they're in their 30s now. That gives me at least two more years. Charlie considered going to college, but busts his butt in sanitation managing truck deployment for the city of Fayetteville. We refer to the city of Fayetteville as if it were an old king on a hill. When does the city of Fayetteville say we can take our vacation to Galveston? Will the city of Fayetteville require you to work overtime around Christmas? Charlie doesn't take shit off anybody, though. When one of the new hires was getting sloppy with the cans in our neighborhood, slinging them out onto the road behind him, Charlie insisted there be a reckoning. Oh, yes, he said, there will be a reckoning. The next week, the garbage cans were lined up as neatly as fence posts. The old house we rent from one of Charlie's uncles has two stories of peeling white clabbered and dipping porches, a crumbling fireplace, and a dusty basement lined with mason jars, kerosene lamps, and rusted tools. Before this, we were looking after my grandpa's old farm over in Newton County to keep it from standing empty while they settled as a state amongst the kids and waited for a buyer. 400 acres of meadows, bluffs, and dense woods where Charlie and me felt like we ruled our own kingdom. When a developer from Michigan finally bought it for a hunting retreat, we decided to move closer to the action. Our rental in town, surrounded by fields 10 years ago, is now a five-acre track bordered by new homes and a Walmart parking lot whose lamps light up the night like an alien invasion. A few of our scraggly cows and a mule I refuse to give up have worn a path around that little square of grass amongst the construction. Why? Charlie asks whenever he sees a mule hanging its sullen head over the fence. He approves of fewer and fewer of my choices. General Lee soothes me, I say. Matching brick duplexes and recent starter homes slapped up overnight on flimsy concrete slabs on tiny lots with their garages jutting out like hard-ons, line newly paved streets all the way to our front yard with its twin white oaks, a magnolia in the back. Their yards are treeless, except for the odd Bradford pear that splinters at the hint of wind. The shattered trees make me fantasize about everything blown away and back to empty open spaces. I am the first in my family to move to town, the first to go to college, the first to take a cruise, a class on poetry or jazz dance, and to go try the new Shogun Steakhouse by the mall where they juggle knives and flip shrimp into waiting mouths, although Charlie won't go because they don't have french fries. I am the first to have a plan different than staying in Kingston, where Charlie and me grew up together, population 250, raising chickens and kids on a couple hundred acres of dense woods. Living in town is new enough to us that we still stare out at our neighbors when we don't think they're looking. Neither of us ever had neighbors we could see, and we study their habits through gaps in the drapes, signaling to one another when something good is happening. Every day, their children, who are slow to get out of the way, crowd the middle of the road. Fat kids and four-wheelers speckle front lawns, and dogs too big to be running loose in town roam the streets. I take note of each new inflatable critter for a holiday or wooden cutouts of old lady or cow asses jammed into flower beds, everything designed for others to see. Occasionally, a googly-eyed grinning plywood stork appears with, It's a boy! as if anybody driving past gave a shit. This morning, the house next door to us, empty for two months, had a U-Haul parked in the driveway. I poked Charlie in the ass to get up. We watched the contents pass between ramp and door, futons and old 60s-style furniture, dull-colored pillows, a ratty papasan chair, plants, and a baby's crib. Not much stuff. A few, a few children from the street gathered to stare at them. One little girl clutched a dirty poodle, another a machete. They kept their distance despite... Waves of hello from the new runners, a young couple. 
When the woman lifted anything, tufts of reddish hair appeared under her arms, and her sleeveless top gaped open to reveal limp, unsecured tits. Her hair was tied up in some African-looking swag, a tall, angular man in flip-flops, almost handsome, have to box as weakly on his shoulder, his face grimacing as if they held stones. Hippies, Charlie said. Academics, I said. Communists, Charlie said. Poets, I said. Their license plate on a trailered Subaru Outback said Indiana. Should we go say hello, I said. Nah, Charlie said. It invites familiarity. And that's bad? It is if they turn out to be a nuisance. For two days, nothing more happened next door. And since the new tenants didn't come outside much or poke signs into their patch of lawn declaring their allegiance to America, the Razorbacks, or something drippy and fake like welcome friends, we forgot about them. On Saturday, both me and Charlie's day off, we opened a bottle of tequila and got out the compound bow. I set up a few bales of hay at the edge of the field, and Charlie tacked up a plastic image of a buck in profile, looking over its bullseye shoulder coyly, as if inviting you to fuck it rather than kill it. Don't shoot a cow, I said. They're too skinny to hit, Charlie said. We traded the bow off, seeing who was the best shot at increasing paces. I hit more than Charlie, but that was always the way. Kids gathered briefly at the edge of the field to see what we were doing with a bow and arrows, but then went back to playing war, whacking each other with sticks they gathered from our front yard. I didn't like them getting in our yard. But Charlie pointed out the sticks from their puny Bradford pears weren't big enough to hurt, and it kept our lawn clean. We plugged away at the buck, but there's only so much fun you can get out of shooting at a picture of a deer. The expression never alters whether you hit it in the ass or the eye. We got anything else we can shoot at, Charlie said. And that's when I came up with the propane-filled balloons and flaming arrows. We stumbled into the house and grabbed some party balloons I never blew up for Charlie's birthday. I went down in the basement with a flashlight and found a can of kerosene and then ate Doritos while Charlie filled the balloons from our propane grill and stuffed them into garbage bags. We tore up old socks, tied them to the arrowheads, and soaked them in kerosene. After I wedged a metal fence post into the ground and stuck a balloon on it with a garbage tie, Charlie graciously allowed me the first shot and lit my tip. It sputtered out before reaching the target, which I missed by several feet. Let it burn longer before you release it, Charlie said. This time the flame held, and I adjusted for my first miss. The balloon exploded with a puff of flame, a satisfying pop. Charlie whooped, and we took turns assembling the targets and arrows. The cattle trotted about the field with each new bang, kicking up their heels until they figured there wasn't anything to get away from. Then they stood alert by the salt block, watching. General Lee never budged from his corner by the house. We lit, shot, and whooped, and lit and shot like some last line of defense in an old movie, flames of vindication falling from the sky on foreign invaders. We were almost out of balloons when I saw the new neighbors. At the edge of the field, he was stepping toe-to-toe like you need to pee, and behind him I saw her mouth moving a mile a minute, but too quiet for us to hear. Her hair was a waving, wiry mop of dull red. When he realized we had sighted him, he lifted the barbed wire gingerly and attempted to squirm through, his wife behind him plucking the wire up to allow her long-limbed man onto our property. "Uh Uh-oh, Charlie said. I lowered the bow and watched him cross the field while trying to look nonchalant, as if avoiding cow shit was second nature to him. Um, hello, he called. Up close, he had wavy brown hair that stuck up in random directions and green eyes. He shoved one hand deep into his corduroy pants and with the other readjusted his glasses. 
Hey, we said back. I stared at him, and Charlie poured kerosene on another sock-tipped arrow. He told us his name was Alex, and he had a new job teaching English at the community college. He and his wife, Sheila, had moved here from Bloomington to be closer with the new baby to his ailing mother, a Bentonville retiree. More and more old Yankees are moving there, building golf courses and coffee shops. He said Sheila was into organic gardening and had a master's in something called sustainability. Charlie and me nodded, but neither of us expressed much interest in what the fuck that meant. You a poet? I said. Well, sometimes, he said. Why? I laughed and Charlie snorted. Alex blinked and lifted his hands to pull his, back his hair from his forehead, almost as if shielding himself from us. Even with all the tequila I'd drunk, I felt a little bad for laughing. Look, my wife and I are concerned about the flames due to, you know, risk, Alex said. To what? I said. Grass fires and such, he said, and waved his hand at our stubbly little field. The wind was picking up, and in the distance, a dark cloud bank was still far enough away to pretend it wouldn't come our direction. Hey, we should have introduced ourselves earlier, but we've been really busy getting settled. We got a hose over there, I nodded toward the house. Alex glanced toward the house, then back at me. He looked me right in the eye and smiled, and since he didn't seem to be trying to start anything, I offered him the bow. Have you ever had the pleasure of shooting a flaming arrow into a propane balloon, I said. Well, no, of course not, he said. I mean, where we're from, he looked over his shoulder toward his watchful, fuzzy wife. It's against the law, I, I think. Not here, buddy, Charlie said. Give it a shot. His palm opened, slender fingers lifting as if he were taking my hand and not the bow. I leaned in close and showed him how to notch the arrow, catching a musky, lemony scent off his smooth cheek. But as Charlie went to light the tip, a shrill noise came from the edge of the field. Alex flinched, and we all turned to see his wife waving her arms like she was directing a 747 into land. Well, okay then, Alex said. Nice to meet you. As if everything was settled. He shrugged, handed me the bow and the prepped arrow, and walked back through the cow piles. I got one more arrow off, and then we were out of balloons and hungry. Taco Bell or Arby's? Charlie asked. Sunday, we woke up hungover to find a gift basket full of rotten-looking apples and a note outside our door. I read it aloud to Charlie. Why don't we get to know one another better tonight at dinner? Five, your new neighbors, Alex and Sheila. See, that's why you don't make contact, especially with people trying to get all up in your shit, Charlie said. I got a game to watch tonight. But now they've given us something and tried to be nice, I said, poking one of the worm-riddled apples. Besides, they probably don't know anyone. Go then if you want to, but I won't, Charlie said. At four, when I got out of the shower, he looked at me funny and went and got a beer, slamming the fridge door hard enough that magnets fell off. At 4.50, when I came out of our room wearing a short skirt, sweater set, and high heels, he was in his underwear, his face firmly set toward the television. Do we have anything I could take? Take them fucking apples back, Charlie said. He sucked hard on his beer and turned up the game, and noises of crowds screaming filled the house while I dug through the kitchen for something for the dinner. I decided on a box of Ritz crackers and a hunk of cheddar cheese. Bye, peckerhead, I said as I headed out the door. Cars lined the street. A woman's laughter came from Alex and Sheila's backyard, short and sharp yips like a dog. Two fat kids on four-wheelers were sitting on the road revving their engines. One of them had a BB gun slung over his thick thighs, the other a long-poled net for scooping fish. What's going on? The gun-toter asked, but I shrugged and walked past. Alex opened the door and a wave of spices and incense hit me. 
He wiped his hands on a dish towel and pulled me into a quick hug, crushing the Ritz box between us. Uh, hi, I said, tapping him briefly on his shoulder with my cheese. Only my grandma used to hug me like that. A woman called from the back where voices murmured, Tell her to take off her shoes. I looked down and saw a pile of sensible shoes at my feet, Birkenstocks and things a pilgrim might wear on a camping trip, and realized my toenails had not been painted in a month but still held remnants of a color Charlie called slutty pink. I'd rather not, I said. Alex paused to glance at my shoes and then ushered me in. Their living room was full of plants and the walls were covered with the fabric art of some distant tribe, like a pottery barn, Ed. No television or evidence of the baby except a large plaster cast of a pregnant torso hanging on the wall. The limp dugs I glimpsed while they were unloading forever memorialized. It was a party of people from his school, or what passed for a party, if you like to think too much. In the kitchen, there were people hovering around a bowl of green liquid stuff they dipped hunks of brown bread into. I saw the wife sitting in the corner playing with her cheese. Up close, she was colorless except for her dull red hair, her loose clothes, and shades manufactured from mashed berries and earth that would blend in with the brush in my backyard. Pale skin and eyes, thin set lips, a wren. She looked down at my feet. Wouldn't you be more comfortable out of those heels? She nodded at my shoes. No, thank you. I looked at her wide, flat feet, unpainted toes curling into the tile floor. Everyone else turned to stare at my faux crocodile-patterned slingbacks as if they were flippers. Their feet were all bare or sock-footed. Lips pursed as they looked away. How about a glass of wine, Jan, Alex said, and took the crackers and cheese and put them on the counter. There I saw piles of fruit, vegetables, and multicolored cheeses, some with hunks of stuff in them that made them look rotten. I remembered the apples. Thank you for the apples, I said. Oh, we found a great little organic orchard outside of town, the wren said. They're delicious, aren't they? I took my glass of wine, and Alex introduced me as her next-door neighbor. People nodded and said their names. Sheila did not get up. It was crowded in the kitchen, and when I saw more people on an outside patio, I edged out into the open darkness. Alex followed and introduced me again as their neighbor. Oh, people said. When asked what I did and where I was from, there was a knowing nod to one another. Isn't it insane you have a mule next door? A woman grabbed Alex's arm and pointed. Too funny. I downed the first glass of wine and headed inside for another. Another, Sheila said, as much cheerful accusation as question. Yes, I said, thrusting my empty glass back at her. I checked out the food and I ate a few carrot sticks, but nothing looked that appetizing, so I ate my cheese and ritz. There was a notable absence of meat. After my third glass of wine, I was on the patio explaining to the too funny woman that General Lee was a gift from my grandfather, who had since passed. Alex hovered nearby listening. The wind picked up and whipped long strands of other people's hair into my mouth. I looked across and saw the blue glow of the television through a gap in our curtains and wondered if Charlie was watching us or his game. How wonderful, Alex said. He stood beside me while I talked about growing up on several hundred acres. He got drunker as well, and by the time the warning sirens, sirens and hail drove us inside, we were deep into a conversation about small farms. A cat bolted out from under the futon, howling. Animals know to be afraid. Alex opened another bottle of wine. Do tornadoes ever actually hit here? A bearded man asked. Something green dangled from his mustache. 
We've lived here three years and the sirens seem to be pointless. Sure, I said, and motioned to the side of my own mouth. But you should be okay as long as you have a basement like ours. You have a basement? Sheila said. Before I could answer, I heard a wail from the back of the house. The hail drumming the roof had woken the baby. Sheila disappeared to tend to, to it just as the lights went out. Candles on the coffee table now lent an old-world glow to the room. Alex took a lit candle to Sheila and then went into the kitchen to light some more. I followed him and asked a question I'd been meaning to all night. What sort of poetry do you write? He sighed and poured another glass of wine for me. He shoveled something I didn't recognize in the dim light onto a hunk of bread. Try this. I opened my mouth without hesitating as fingers brushed my lips as my mouth closed on what I could not see. It tasted like summer, like sun-heated leaves crushed with something oily, rich, and smooth. I picked up a hunk of bread to eat more and Alex stood close while we watched the hail bounce off the patio, the lightning revealing the moving forms of the cattle, and General Lee restless in the dark. Charlie was asleep or pretending to be when I got home way too late. In the morning over coffee, he said, Well, you were right, I said. You would have been bored. On our street, the trash cans were blowing everywhere, and on the television, we saw homes taken down to the slab while their next-door neighbor's tulips weren't even ruffled. Repetitions of the season. Rising temperatures colliding with lingering cold fronts. Crops ruined, neighborhoods gone, pets lost, clothes and furniture slung around towns, splintered wood and soggy cotton. A baby blanket gnarled in a tree limb momentarily mistaken for the child itself. Women wept and stunned men gestured with pale puffy arms at all they had left wearing tight t-shirts at their time of televised pain that said something stupid about grandma's love or bush beer. Fucking Oklahoma, Charlie said, as, it was, as if it was half a world apart and not less than a hundred miles away. A few days later, he told me he was going to take some days off with his cousins at their fishing camp. The bass were running on the White River. He only got two weeks paid vacation a year and he didn't invite me. Fine, I said. Go on then if you want to. It was late Friday afternoon and Charlie had been gone for two days. I told myself I liked the quiet to read in, but the house and the neighbors felt louder without his games on TV. Every screaming child or burst of wind made me jump. I watched the neighbors even more. The first day, Alex stood on his back porch and smoked, and the woman came out occasionally and surveyed the front yard, her hands on her hips, long skirts dragging the grass. The Subaru was gone on Friday. Though loaded up with the baby things and a pod-like object, I assume must be the baby itself. I watched for more activity but saw none, not even cigarette smoke from the back. I poked around the front and side of the house as if I were interested in what was growing there, glancing at their house. No neighbor appeared except a toddler carrying a plastic lightsaber and riding a tricycle circling at the edge of our property. I opened a beer and sat on the porch watching the street and the tri tricyclists until dusk when it was time to feed General Lee. After dumping his feed and scratching his ear, I noticed a burrow near the fence line and I got my twenty-two in a hole. When I dug into the soft earth, I could hear scuffling from within, something struggling. I dug further and uncovered the roughened prehistoric back of an armadillo, four baby ones surrounding it, lifting their pink noses into the air. One shot in the head took out the mother, whose body twitched briefly, but I paused before shooting young. Their dim eyes blinked in the light, 
and when I poked at them with the twenty-two barrel, they raised their small forefeet in defense as if in greeting. It was almost cute. I looked up and saw children gathering silently at the fence again, and I wondered if it was the hoe or the gun they found more fascinating to see in use. Alex walked up behind them and wiggled his way through the fence less skillfully than he had with his wife's assistance. Hey, he said, do you think you should be doing that? What? I said. Shooting a gun? Like in town with kids around? He said, what are you shooting at anyway? He came close enough to see the dead mother armadillo and squirming young in the ground. Alex gasped and put his hands up, reminding me of the baby I'd just poked with the gun barrel. Why? He said. I explained to Alex that armadillos spread up from Texas and ate the gardens and burrowed holes into fields where livestock could stumble and break legs. I had to shoot a cow once whose leg was broken from an armadillo burrow. Yeah, but, Alex said, and they also carry leprosy. I said, you don't want these bastards in your backyard. At leprosy, Alex paused and put his hands on his hips. Really? Really. I raised the gun and shot one baby. Alex jumped, then another, then the third. Then I extended the gun toward him. No, I couldn't. Think of it as protecting your homestead, I said. Besides, if you don't shoot it, I will. Alex gingerly took the gun after I showed him how to point it and where not to, how to click the safety on and off, how to aim. Get close enough to be certain you shoot it in the head, I said. He pushed the barrel toward the last baby whose snout rose to meet the tip. After he pulled the trigger, he stared at the dead and then at the weapon in his hands. I took the gun from him, laid it down, and picked up the hoe, filled in the hole, and tamped the ground flat. Job well done, I said. Time for a drink. We went to his house where he said he still had plenty of wine left over from the party. Where's your wife gone to, I said, after he poured our glasses near to the rim. We sat side by side on a lumpy futon. The house smelled like a combination of apple cider and old potatoes, slightly rotten yet sweet. Alex shrugged. My mother's for two nights. Only a weekend in the sustainability major was having a hard time finding a way to sustain herself in her new surroundings. Not enough like-minded people, Alex said. But she was starting a new part-time job at the mall Starbucks, and his mother was going to be coming down and helping out with the baby. We won't be here forever, Alex said. My mother has cancer. It ain't that bad here, I said, but then immediately wondered if I was wrong and regretted saying ain't. No, of course not, Alex waved his hand in the air as if waving away where we were, along with his dying mother and dissatisfied wife. His long fingers accidentally brushed my hair and he giggled nervously. Let's talk about something else. He asked me what I liked to read, what it was like where I grew up, where I, was most, where I most wanted to go, all my favorite things, leaning in closer and laughing harder with each new glass of wine he poured. He didn't dwell much on the answers. What do you like? I asked. Here, Alex lapsed into a rehearsed-sounding list, one thing leading to another. Somehow, I heard Indian food, blah, blah, Nietzsche, blah, 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 crushed garlic, Marquez, blah, blah, desert sunsets, Irish butter, Wordsworth, blah, blah. I listened and nodded. His hand fell close to my leg. I saw a strange scar on his middle finger, the skin different colors at the tip. I picked up his hand to see it better, holding it softly with mine. What happened to your finger? I asked. Working at Arby's, slicing meat, he said. I call that my magic click finger. I thought I misheard him, so I asked him to repeat himself, and he did, wiggling the magic click finger in the air like a treat for a dog. I let go of his hand and sat back. 
I said I thought maybe I should be going home, and Alex protested a little, his hand brushing up my thigh. But when I stood up, he slumped back against the futon pillows and picked up his glass of wine. I'd like to read your poem sometime, really, I said, and walked toward the door. His voice took on the tone of a bored ghost, all airy and flat, and he began reciting some nonsense about painless pain, blood, mouths, and roses. Hey, that's great, I said, and with a good night, I shut the door. The next morning, I found a handwritten note. To try to write love is to confront the muck of language, that region of hysteria where language is both too much and too little, excessive and impoverished. It was in quotation marks, so I guess someone else said this. I put it in my purse and then thought better and burned it at the stove. Charlie came back that afternoon. I was glad to see him. His boots hit the floor, the smell of fish and cigarettes on his clothes. We ate fried fish and sat together in silence watching TV. The warning beeps from the National Weather Service kept interrupting our show. We have rotation. Later in bed, Charlie's hand on my tit, I couldn't sleep. The clock read three when I flicked his hand off and walked to the bedroom window to look at Alex and Sheila's in their empty square of lawn. The Subaru was back, and their living room window revealed a single light on. Beyond them, all the neatly arranged homes fanned out toward the bypass like tanks waiting for deployment. The glow of Walmart parking lamps merged with the glow of Fayetteville, but there was something off in the color. With a single burst of green lightning, I saw the sky lit up into a boiling, frightening thing, revealing shadows that I had never seen there before, like the heavens were possessed. The air was still, though. No real wind, and all I could hear was General Lee trotting the fence line, his hooves a dull thud in the silence. God damn, Charlie, I said, get up and look at this. He grunted, but came over and stood beside me, scratching his balls. We looked up into the churning sky. As the tornado sirens fired up, we heard a hard knock at our door. We both jumped. Charlie and me looked at each other. Neither one of us wanted to answer it. Another knock, this time louder, rattling the glass panes in the door. I threw on a robe and grabbed a baseball bat I kept by the bed, and Charlie pulled on his old underwear and got the twenty-two. We flicked on our living room lights before we went to the door together. Through a pane of glass, I saw Alex looking sheepish, and next to him a crest of fuzzy red hair. We opened the door to find Sheila standing there, barefoot in her robe, clutching her crying baby in a sling over her shoulder. Alex was also barefoot, in plaid pajama bottoms and a t-shirt with Johnny Cash flipping the bird. He had a wailing cat and a pet carrier. They stared at our weapons. We're so sorry, Sheila said, but can we get in your basement? I expected Charlie to object, maybe even point out that it was three o'clock in the morning and people ought to leave other folks alone, live with their own fear in their own living rooms, which was how I felt about them standing there half naked and full of need. Then there was another lightning flash and the sky behind them was alive. A dark finger pointed downward in the distance. Get in here, both Charlie and I said at once. More order than invitation, we all turned for a moment on our doorstep, me, Charlie, and the neighbors, and marveled at the sight before closing the door. This way, we said, and guided them down the basement steps with a flashlight. The earthy hole beneath the house, almost as frightening now as what was outside. I lit a kerosene lamp, and we huddled closer together near an old stone foundation column. As the noise rose, I heard General Lee braying out back. Maybe it will head west, I said. It looked like it was heading west. Everyone agreed it did. We hunkered down in our pajamas, getting closer to the floor. Charlie shivered, so I wrapped an arm around him. 
Alex started petting his wife as she tried to soothe the baby, and I watched his long fingers smooth back her hair. He did not look up at either me or Charlie. The baby was a little girl, her face a knot of dissatisfaction, and I reached out to touch the edge of her blanket. The cat backed into the corner of its carrier had gone silent. I could hear noise like I'd never heard before, a thrashing, angry thing seeking retribution. We waited there, crouched together in the dust and half-light of the kerosene's flame, looking like frightened savages. And I knew that even if we were skipped over, we were all just newcomers to a place already gone.